Welcome to RPG Reanimators, a podcast for GMs where we dissect horror scenarios and offer our experiences and advice to reanimate it at the table. I'm Alex. I'm Lex. I'm Nathan. So let's see what's on the slab. The case report for this session is Extremophilia, which is a scenario written by Shane Ivey for Delta Green. It can be found in the scenario collection A Night at the Opera. In this scenario, a deputy in Montana has died in his sleep due to toxic shock, and upon examination of his body, high concentrations of heavy metals were found throughout him, concentrations that would take months to build up. Delta Green is called in to investigate. As with any dissection, we'll be discussing all the gross innards of this scenario, so from this point on, there will be spoilers. So if you're interested in playing this scenario, please stop here and share this episode with your GM so they can listen and consider running this for your group. We'll also include links for where you can purchase a copy of this scenario for yourself in the show notes of this episode. Now with that out of the way, let's begin our dissection. So Lex, could you talk to me about what's really going on? Sure. So we need to begin before the beginning, quite a bit in this case. Benthic Company a subsidiary of March Technologies, got access to this sample of alien fungus that was semi-stable, seemed to be phasing in and out of reality, and wasn't able to grow and nurture. And we're set to analyzing this for quite some time, trying different compounds and ways to mature and get it to grow, ultimately finding that in concentrations of high heavy metals and other things, it started to grow and flourish. They found in a local local natural park area, the Berkeley Pit, these concentrations of heavy metals in this water environment was was fertile ground to plant this fungus. And so in the cover of night, they placed this fungus in the pit and let it grow and then continued studying it. During one of the extractions, two of the lab members got contaminated by this fungus from a rip in their suit, one Brent McCaslin and Laura Gent. They became sick and were under heavy medical examination for some time and then began recovering. Sort of. The fungus itself seemed to purge any deficiencies or diseases and things inside of their bodies and made them extremely healthy and also started expanding their minds and their intellectual capabilities at the cost of also giving them visions and connecting them to the true source of the fungus, the me-go. As time went on, McCaslin began losing more and more touch with reality and became obsessed with getting access to the Song of the Star People and being able to reach out to the me-go in order to go with them up to the stars and continue his journey. To do this, He knew that there was a tape that contained a recording of this Mego and needed certain someones to find out where this is. He could only see the tape in its resting place under the ground. And so to spur this chain of events, he began wandering out on the road one night and was pulled over by one deputy, Fred Jacobs. In talking with him for some time, Brent McCaslin vomits on him, contaminating him with this fungus and spurring the investigation. Fred Jacobs gets a lot of heavy metals in his system and dies very soon, which causes the Delta Green investigators to come in and investigate this. As part of it, they go to the Green Box for supplies, where the Song of the Star People tape is. 
after they take this, McCaslin now has access to it. So then finding the Delta Green agents, he can get access to the tape, learn the song, and then go to Devil's Tower to complete his journey. In the midst of this sort of central plot and narrative, there's lots of other ticking time bombs and spinning plates that are happening. Fred Jacobs infects his wife, Christina, and their unborn daughter, Joanna. I think that's her name. Coroner Holsey gets infected by Fred Jacobs' body and takes himself to the hospital where he is going to pop soon. And the Benthic Company, who is sort of at the heart of all of this, is kind of sitting there doing their own thing. Is that enough of a summary? There's, there's a lot of kind yeah. of spurious parts going on in this. Wow, that, that is quite a lot. Well, yeah. what I'd like to know is the Delta Green agents, they're called in, but which Delta Green do you think is optimal for this scenario? Because I understand that some program options are discussed more than outlaw options. I think the scenario kind of assumes people are going to be program agents. There's several potential options that you can throw in as part of it. But one of the main wrenches that I love to throw in for agents is after the agents have discovered Fred Jacobs' body and are in the middle of their investigation, they get a call to put that meat in the freezer and don't grill it mm. and to take the body and put it in the green box, which is very dangerous and it's a big detour. It makes no sense for the outlaws to do that. TBH. Outlaws would just say, burn it, burn it down, and then get out. Yeah, you could potentially have two very different games. Mm -hmm. We'll be discussing the program option. Yeah, it's no joke when we say the program is assumed. The outlaw is mentioned once as being an option, and then every other time in the text is the program. So it's probably not made for outlaw work. So could you tell me a bit more about the key locations described in the text where the agents can pick up clues to start unraveling this mystery? Sure. So most of this investigation takes place in Helena, Montana, with a few key locations sort of addressed in this case. It's going to be Fred Jacobs' house is described in some detail. They're also going to be spending a lot of time around the coroner's office and the sheriff's office, likely, which doesn't get a whole lot of detail. On the other hand, it gives a ton of description of Benefit Corporation, even with a map, that players are extremely unlikely to ever encounter or use. <laughs> it gives a lot of description to the Berkeley Pit in Montana. It calls it the Oakland Pit in the text, and I really don't know why they do that. I, it's kind of like saying, you're about to travel to Gold Rock National Park. And, like, everyone knows it's Yellowstone. I don't, uh, whatever. They don't want the pit to sue them. I guess. And it gives some good description for a green box that is left far off the beaten path and requires a metal detector to discover. And last but not least, it gives a pretty good description of Devil's Tower, which is where the big showdown of the scenario is supposed to take place. Could you talk to me about the key NPCs that the agents might encounter during this opera? Which ones stand out to you? Hi. This is Future Lex, with a couple of quick clarifications related to our discussion of this scenario. First, we are well aware that Fred and Christina's last name is Jacob, with a B, in the text. However, in conversations, we tend to slip into saying Jacobs with an S because it rolls off the tongue a bit easier and is a more common last name in general. Second, we realized after this recording finished that the name Joanna does not appear anywhere in the scenario text. 
Instead, Fred and Christina's baby is only ever referred to as the fungal child in 99% of the scenario, except for one line in the stat block, which names the baby Fred Jacob Jr. Needless to say, I thought this was dumb and instead committed the name Joanna to my working memory of the scenario while discussing it. So don't at me with corrections if you're a Fred Jacob Jr. loyalist, because Joanna is empirically a better name to use. Anyway, back to the discussion. Christina and her daughter Joanna are already infected and are a massive scare for agents whenever they discover this awful, deformed baby thing that has some great art by Dennis Detwiller in it and is meant to be this big ethical hurdle. Like, do they just murk a mother and daughter that they're infected? They're a dangerous vector, but they're not actively harmful. So that leads to some good interactions there, especially for them trying to find a cure or something. Uh, Brent McCaslin, on the other hand, is far beyond redemption. He has a hefty amount of description for himself. It also mentions his condo and apartment just very slightly, that there's some clue dumps that you can find in there. Not a lot of locations for where that is in town. That's up to the handler. And it also has a lot of details for uh, members of the sheriff's office. I think the main one that's going to come up is going to be Sergeant Hayes. Uh, he's sort of the PC's buddy that is meant to help guide them along in the investigation and also keep an eye on them by one Sheriff Potter. Sheriff Potter is very content to be king of his little kingdom. And then it describes a lot of other members of the Lewis and Clark County Sheriff's Office that really don't show up much, if at all. In addition, it has a lot of other throwaway NPCs. Um, some of the main ones are the two EPA investigators that are just sort of there without much description or reason designed to be a hassle. I don't know. Uh, and there's also a lot of sections for different benthic research staff. If this is another avenue that agents want to investigate, uh, but we can sort of get into more details in terms of threats with that later. There's also a random option for a Phenomenex investigator with Bill Blank, the delivery driver that can also go in to stir things up. But there's not really a whole lot of detail for this character aside from his reason for changing his name to Bill Blank. That's, yeah, again, up to the handler. Well, there is a reason that you might want to use Bill Blank if this is an introductory scenario. It is realistically a lot of the things that you will run across, and we'll talk more about this later, are there to give you a somewhat gentle introduction into the world of Delta Green. For example, this Phenomenex contributor and his write-up and whatnot is already pretty well discredited and is probably going to be ignored. But if you have players that have no idea what Phenomenex is, it might be worthwhile to have him just wandering around. Same with Benthic having a relationship uh, up the chain to March Technologies, the idea of the program versus the outlaws. There's a lot of small threads that are low payoff in uh, regards to this scenario, potentially, but could be an introduction for later. So from what you've described so far with all these NPCs, they take on a lot of adversarial roles for this scenario. It seems like the agents are pretty much all alone in Helena, Montana, in terms of allies. Kind of, sort of. That's where Sergeant Hayes is sort of meant to be their main buddy. 
I also tend to add an NPC for a slightly inept uh, front desk worker at the coroner's office that can help show them around so that it's just not abandoned. Um, but as written, Sergeant Hayes is meant to be there to help be their friend, to help guide them along with an ulterior motive that Sheriff Potter wants him to keep an eye on them and investigating around his town. So potentially discovering that he's been narking on them uh, could be another way to feel like they really are alone in all of this. Right. It's a good backup character option as well. Yes, he's my immediate backup character because he's close enough to Fred Jacobs that it's pretty easy to rationalize. He is going to continue this investigation independently as well. Right. And there's also the chance that he be also becomes an adversary, just reporting it to the sheriff who is in the, the pocket of Benthic. <laughs> or getting uh, but, into a knockdown drag out beside the road because one of your agents <laughs> wants to punch a cop. True. And also on top of that, would you say that there's a high probability of this Officer Hayes becoming a friendly for the players play their cards right? Yeah, I definitely think so. It's He has a solid motivator in terms of his best friend, Fred Jacobs, is dead. It's really mysterious. He doesn't know what's going on. So finding a way to flip him would be a great sort of uh, arc for him to become a friendly. Yeah, from my reading, it seems like there's just a lot of politics involved. People in each other's pockets or being paid off. And that's something I think is actually a strength of the scenario, because from the player side of things, they just see one overall conspiracy. So whenever you have this broader conspiracy of Benthic and McCaslin and this weird hidden fungus in the lake, and then you have the local politics of Sheriff Potter wanting to be the king of his little kingdom, and if agents are rude to him or push him too far... I have him lash back out at them. And by instructing Hayes to keep an eye on them, they think that the entire town is in on it and that Potter is trying to cover everything up when really he's just kind of a small town douche. And in discovering that the cops are just kind of shitty cops and that it isn't just this broader conspiracy was a fun realization for my agents at the table. Could you so, talk to me about some other threats? Sure. I think the main one that's really driving the story in this case is Brent McCaslin. Uh, his third eye, so be it, has been expanded enough that he has some psychic abilities. He can command and enthrall others around him to do his bidding, which is handy because he can't do things like drive or operate a cell phone anymore. Um, he is largely lying in wait until sort of it's useful to bring him in this is one of my favorite things about mccaslin being able to see the future is it's literally a mechanic that you can use him when it best suits it because he can know when and where all of the agents are going to be and also where the tape is so in my case i had an agent with the tape in the back of his truck that was doing a solo stakeout of benthic by himself so mccaslin just knocks on the window and instantly enthralls him to start driving him away and so being able to use him for that kind of story art gotcha moment is really fun from there. He's not actively harmful to the agents. He just wants to get the song so that he can make a collect call to the Migo to get picked up. The agents just then fuck all that up and then keep shooting at them with guns when they were just an intergalactic Uber. And I think that's an interesting point towards a lot of the threats for this scenario is they're either the disease, which is a, a long form sort of threat or they're not really actively physically threatening mm -hmm. the players um 
the jumping way ahead, the Migo really don't care. The sheriff doesn't care. Benthic just zips up and goes away. There's not a lot that will actively kill them other than cancer if they start eating batteries. And that's something that I actually liked about the scenario whenever I was reading it, because it felt like the Mm -hmm. agents are really there to wander right into this spider web. And sort of as they are blindly searching around, they're antagonizing these things that are just existing and doing their own thing. Like everything in the story will happen, whether or not the agents are involved. The agents can then antagonize things and make it worse, mostly for themselves. <laughs> the infection, I think, does a lot to increase paranoia among the agents, especially if you do hidden roles so they don't know exactly how to guard against it. In the case mm-hmm. that they can put on masks and think that they're safe, that doesn't do anything. If you can then do a secret role to decide who is infected and then sort of drip feed in symptoms, don't just give them, in my case, I just gave them a sheet that said, like, you're going to get these mm-hmm. things after so many days. I think that being able to distance the infection point from symptoms can make agents a lot more scared. And they don't want to keep investigating it, but they have the pressure to resolve this because they see that there's something bigger going on. And as for the Migo, I really recommend checking through the Machinations of the Migo supplement that I think is available on uh, Willer's Patreon, because it has a lot of additional details you can use to make some creepy, weird descriptors for them that isn't just, they're crabs from outer space that have wings <laughs> and then they disappear whenever they're dead. And that they are not actively hostile, but they certainly seem like it whenever they just see these random agents and try and give them sleepy time bites, but the agents think they're being attacked and will then lash out. And this does reference a few times the Eyes Only collection, I believe, which should be part of the reprint at some point. There's also another larger looming threat, and that is getting the CDC and the EPA involved. If Holsey pops and the contagion continues spreading, it's very quickly going to get out of control. And... A lot of the times my agents were saying, it's like, well, we should just call the CDC. And I would have to be that little GM voice in their head saying, okay, but if you do, it's going to be impossible to cover this up and it's going to blow the lid on this whole conspiracy. That's sort of against your primary directive. And you might just get killed for doing that, but go for it. I think it's sort of inevitable if the situation gets out of hand. And Unfortunately, the scenario has absolutely zero guidance for what to do with that, and that is the most complicated can of worms that can happen. It references to read the CDC's infectious disease protocol. Like, dude, I have an MPH. I know how those (laughs) those things work. I am not going to do all of that effort to put this into a game. That's so much effort for a GM and so many extra things to handle. You could have taken half of that benthic detail out and just give me some ideas and GM guidance for what to do if these things happen and ways to keep the story moving along. So what I'm hearing is that after it gets out of Helena, it's somehow not very contagious anymore and it never really spreads beyond the scope of this adventure. Interesting. Who knows? That's something I have in the (laughs) epilogue. If they leave the pit alone that like in a few Mm -hmm. years, they keep mentioning its water levels are rising and can spill over into groundwater soon. So I try to leave that little dun, 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 that it can spread in the future. But like, honestly, though, as far as Delta Green level threats, this is not super harmful. It's just a fungus that like if people drink it and get infected with it, they're just going to want to ET phone home and scoot 
they're not going to try and infiltrate the government or, you know, mm-hmm. try to infect other people. They're just kind of doing their own thing, which I kind of liked. It was atypical compared to a lot of DG content. So do the agent's choices even matter? That's the question. I think it matters to the agents. In the broader scheme of things, I like that it has that kind of cosmic insignificance that like, mm. sure, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, no, nothing we do ever matters. That's kind of the DG narrative. It's just like, you can try and kill yourself to put off doomsday for one day. But like, this is kind of impossible to stop unless they really nuke it from orbit. Yeah, so as written, if Brent McCaslin gets up to the Devil's Tower, he just gets debrained and he goes away. Pretty much, yeah. Doesn't affect anyone. No, it doesn't. That's something that I think is pretty funny about it, is that it really relies on this kind of misunderstanding at the critical climax that, like, the agents keep fucking everything up. So they make their own gunfight, they end up shooting the Migo, and everything else. If McCaslin ends up just getting debrained and dumped at Devil's Tower, they might have a light cover-up to do. Also, Christina Jacobs is going to cart her and her baby up there to go do the same thing. Also, anyone else that gets infected for long enough and can stay stable without alerting federal authorities are going to keep doing the same thing. Hmm. So in that case, it is kind of like a, a leak that does need to get plugged by DG because it's an active risk. But isn't this just anti-gameplay yeah. where doing nothing is actually better than doing something? Well, that's the thing, though, is they really can't do nothing. They know that something is happening. This is an active, call it a press risk, because as these people keep coming up, they're going to start learning there is an alien fungus. And like that is directly against Delta Green's whole point of having a conspiracy to make sure people think everything is fine. So even though it's relatively benign, I think is the word that I've been looking for, it's still something the agents need to try and plug up. And they end up making everything harder for themselves in doing so. And I think your point to that being a theme of Delta Green is solid is very often when you look at these write-ups, it truly is a, if you did nothing, it would solve itself, but it may not be as quiet as you'd like. And realistically, with the CDC aspect towards it too, we were talking about how these show up. These symptoms are pretty intense and people aren't immediately... Um, contagious with this so actual cover-up would not be terribly difficult if you contact traced these people and kind of kept an eye on them if you look at them they start eating batteries and they're incredibly sick for days it wouldn't be the end of the world to solve it but i agree with your point lex i would have liked to see a timeline just proposing some potential outcomes of this spreading further and not being caught. Where does this end up? Do these people, like you were saying, go in towards political office for some reason? Do they start cults of their own to the various gods that they worship? There's definitely some interesting things there. Yeah, and in retrospect, after having running this uh, one and a half times, is (laughs) I I think that I would have the, the fungus in the pit having more of a goal to itself that maybe if it is left alone fundamentally it is still part of the migo the migo themselves are comprised of fungus that then sort of get active so maybe it starts drawing people to it and then it starts assimilating them into it and making itself this new migo human hybrid thing that crawls out of the pit and can be this much larger threat uh 
sort of Alex, to your point, like to give them some impetus that if you do nothing, the first part may not matter, but then this thing will be much worse. Right. Uh, but that's, yeah, again, that would be something for reanimation. Sorry. And then the agents, they're always going to act like Dumbasses. something is at stake. Oh, sure. Right. So it's a, it's it, a moot point. And like you said, for them, it is. There is a very high chance that at least one or two agents are going to get infected during the course of this. And it's extremely unpleasant to go through this and you end up losing your character. Even if they're alive, they're now a servant to the Mego in human right. form. We have any other threats we'd like to discuss? Would you consider Benthic a threat at all? No, honestly, no. <laughs> they are they're tease, baby. They're completely on the defensive. Right. From what I've read. They're not gonna seek out the agent. They're too busy covering up for their uh, own crimes. Mm-hmm. I could see using the security team to silence them if they were aggressive. But that's more of a defensive stance than a particularly aggressive one. I don't see them being proactive in trying to take out the agents, at least as written. It might be interesting to play it that way. Mm -hmm. And that's also, I find it weird that the whole narrative arc of this hinges on Brett McCaslin to pretty much kick everything off and then ride it out. But also Laura Gent is just there. And she's also just as infected, except she's just more content to sit around and fester into a more evil mastermind doing spooky math. That's a very weird, random tangent that like agents can stumble onto. But like, again, she's just described as largely harmless. And just if you find her and question her, then she'll start erupting in evil laughter that ah, you can't stop anything. Like It's stupid. I'm going to eat all <laughs> the batteries I want. <laughs> High tower. She pops open a nice 12 pack. She invests in <laughs> Tesla. Oh, geez. All right. Well, do you think that there are any key events that are vital for a run of Extremophilia? Yes. I have a few that I really love that I think are very cinematic for this. The first one is viewing Deputy Jacob's dash cam footage. I take the time to narrate it like they're watching a movie. And there's this weird vomiting scene. It's also even better if Sergeant Hayes is there uh, to show them the footage. <laughs> and so that, I think, is a really cool scene that that's what cements to players that something's really weird and wrong here. Second, I love the scene when the agents get to meet the baby. Uh, the baby has an interesting glamour effect such that if an agent loses too much sand, I think, they just see a regular mm -hmm. baby. But agents that don't see this deformed thing and that can create a lot of weird paranoia and panic between them. My agents were expecting to see Joanna climbing on the ceiling and trying to like face hug her <laughs> on them. Um, and then, of course, the the final showdown with the Miko. I think, you know, it's on top of a mountain. It's super movie cinematic and I think is great to really hammer in there. I would also include, if you can swing it, the McCaslin bumping into an agent and mind controlling them to get the tape and then start going away out of reach and contact of the other agents for a while. How would you handle the agents getting to Devil's Tower? I sort of... Mm. Right, because that's the ultimate goal of these people infected by the fungus. What, what clues are available for the players to follow? So what I did is I had McCaslin knock on the window of one of the agents and then tell him to start driving in that way. 
And the agent was found later passed out behind the wheel of his truck with the gas completely on empty because he drove literally until he couldn't and then crashed out. McCaslin is then going to continue walking and hitchhiking to get up there. So whenever the agent can finally get back in contact with the others and to say like, this is what happened. I then have a way that the agents can hear on police scanners that like this car is off beside the road. We got a report of some weirdo walking around in front of this and like they can start mapping it and they have enough clues to know he is heading to Devil's Tower. I mean, he can even just say it to the one agent, uh, but then being able to follow this call of cars stalled beside the road and whatnot to follow that trail of breadcrumbs. And there's clues as well. I believe Christina is having visions of this tower um the the tape itself has uh, those with um native american information can kind of figure out as talking about a ghost tower which is devil's tower so there's a lot of little hints that this is important but neatly it doesn't become obvious why until the very end Right. And there's also a notepad you can find in McCaslin's apartment or if they find his office mm. in Benthic or whatever that he sort of scribbled tower and details and things. I have him described as like he sort of draws the outline and silhouette of it that someone could recognize. Um, this is also sort of a, a sort of an issue that I've had with a scenario is this chasing of McCaslin mm. is sort of like a deus chase machina because he has to start on the trip and you know that he's hitchhiking and is sort of getting there and spits and what, what's it called fits and spurts is that the right term uh start, yeah it's something like that whatever fits and starts that that yes sporadically uh-huh. for to turf yeah <laughs> and, um, so then the agents are like fuck we gotta get it pedal to the metal and so they'll drive straight out there and he has to arrive before they do at the tower and generally he needs to be mostly up to the top in terms of climbing and already singing the song because the song takes like fucking hours to do. So in one case, I did have a player ask like, how did he get here before us? I'm like, because it kind of needs to happen to be cool. Like, what are you going to do? Stop him beside the road and say, ah, that's it. We got him in a traffic stop. Well done, gentlemen. It's fucking boring. You need to have him Mm -hmm. get there. You need to have him get there somewhat more plausibly maybe throw in some traffic stops and barricades that people that he's hitched a ride with has passed out and it's caused a traffic wreck that has slowed them down a bit but they have all of the uh hints there that this was because of him yeah i think that's a great addition so now that we've examined the text of this scenario what would you say is the beating heart of it i've been talking so much nathan do you want to uh, sure, I would say that the key beating heart here is the contagion and the conspiracy around both the creation and the containment of it. Uh, kind of ending with this devil's tower. I mean, it's referenced in the text. It's close encounters. I mean, the only thing they literally didn't do is have Brent making a mashed potato model. Eh. Which, I mean, if you wanted to, could just... That would be actually a very fun Easter egg to have in his apartment, this moldy (laughs) mashed potato (laughs) tower. Um, I think another big thing for this is the side effects of attempting to study and contain the mythos 
in this case it's the Migo, but just watch how it spreads out from a simple mistake. And then a heavy dose of political interpersonal landmines, which this scenario is rife with. You really can't talk to anybody without setting something off. Right. And I think that that, again, sort of leans back into the conspiracy thing. They feel like this is a big pit of vipers and need to find a way to navigate it without being able to trust anyone, really. So from what I see, if the player characters really take the time to just slow down and think through their plans, they will be rewarded for that. Hell no. If they take the (laughs) time to slow down and think through stuff, that hospital is going to pop. And that is going to be a huge fire that they are going to have to put out immediately while everything else continues happening. Not in game, out of game. Oh, out of game? Yes. I mean, you could say that about most tabletop sessions, but. (laughs) Well, this one, especially because there's so many landmines. Mm -hmm. I think there is an aspect of triage to this that's interesting of your example of the um, coroner, right? That's in the hospital that will pop and spread this. If the agents realize that that's where the contagion is spreading, they can realistically stop that portion, and then they have a lot more leeway towards the other bits. Uh, The McCaslin bit is the other sort of time-locked thing because he'll escape at some point, but that's not something they'd even initially know. Before we move on to reanimation, what what would we say are the general strengths and limitations of the scenario as written. What really drew me to this scenario to try running it is I love that there were lots of different spinning plates and ticking bombs around Helena for agents to stumble upon and try and resolve. It finds a way to always keep them on their heels and a way to really expand on that. That whole ever-present risk of contagion can really increase everyone's sense of paranoia, especially when agents find that some of them are infected, they have to separate, but they still have all of these ticking plates and things that I think it lends to a really frantic energy that can be fun and create a lot of chaos at the table for the different player characters. Um, And I also found that it was a refreshing way to introduce a kind of stale Lovecraftian entity. At least I found the introduction of the Migo. My players did not know what it was until they showed up. And I described, I think I said the word carapace. And there was this, oh, moment from them at the table. <laughs> That's good. You got fungal past them. That's usually a big hint. Uh, I had mentioned before, I think this is a great introduction to get them kind of teased on things like uh, March. Breckenridge is mentioned as an option. The Migo and uh phenomen x those are all opportunities if you have new players coming in to tease them especially as part of a campaign one shot much less useful and uh, it also has a very large cast that while most of them you probably won't use it lets you kind of pick out what you like as a gm and introduce them or have a, uh, a number of handy scientists in your back pocket if you need them. See, with me, I called that a limitation. It kind mm. of felt like there were so many NPCs that did not matter that it kind of mm. gave me analysis paralysis and just felt like there were a lot of options for me to sort of keep in mind and keep track of that never once came up. The NPCs that I just improvised at the table had 
10 times more presence than the ones that were written in the book, mm -hmm. at least the ones that even showed up out of the ones that were written in the book. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of NPCs, but not a lot of depth for any of them. Yes. And I think, honestly, it just would have been easier to have some guidance for like, you need these kinds of characters and let the GMs make it because I didn't use more than half of the NPCs as written. Maybe I just like lists of names. I guess just you like all of these options, <laughs> but in execution, I found it was a bit too much and was just kind of distracting more than anything. I would add that a limitation of this scenario is how obtusely it's written. Like there's a lot of information that is spread throughout multiple sections and I would like it to be a little more organized. Okay, but I can say that for literally every Delta Green scenario that I've read. It's, <laughs> you can. You read the section for Fred Jacobs, and it's like, cool, that, that does not have all the detail for everything. You just have to control F uh, through the whole document. I definitely agree. I basically had to rewrite the whole scenario into my personal notes to run this because everything is so scattered throughout its pages. I would have loved to see a table of the infected persons and how far along they were. Hmm. Just that so and that a relationship could... map would be awesome to kind of see how it spread out as well. There's actually a plot map that someone sent to me when I mentioned running it. Um, I can add this in the show notes for this episode because I, I think it's helpful when thinking through it. But it was way too much for me to use at the table. Um, but just in case if it works for anybody, happy to add it. And this is intended to be a three or four session. <laughs> right. <laughs> In the, in the box text, yeah, it says this scenario is intended to go three to four sessions. We ran it in eight, and I, agents barely followed up on half of the leads. They started a lot of them, but didn't quite take them to completion. Um, I would definitely budget yourself for six, two-ish hours, two to three hour sessions to okay. try and get through this, because uh, it has a lot of different spinning plates and a lot of speed bumps that can derail the investigation and make it more and more chaotic to try and stay on the rails. I think one of my biggest complaints about this scenario, though, besides the shallow bevy of NPCs, Benthic has such a huge section with this really detailed map and all of this staff and all of these details and is super unlikely to ever come up. It's extremely hard to get access to. As written, there are numerous protocols in place to make it as difficult as possible to get access to. And even if they do, the people at the front desk will stall as much as possible so that they can shred and burn everything. So Nathan, I think to your point, like having someone with a history at Enron that says like, I've seen them do this before, we need to just punch through. Yeah. That would be helpful to resolve a bunch of these things. Um, but as it is, Benthic is insanely difficult to get access to and is so skittish they're going to close up their doors before agents ever have a chance to check things out. Yeah, there's a fine line there where a simple law role could give you that information, but it is pretty difficult to figure out a way around it. Without just handing it to the agents. Right. That's right. something that the scenario kind of feels like every discovery that the agents make, it feels like they earned it. But that also means you as a GM have a hard time giving them le solid leads to follow up mm -hmm. on. So mm -hmm. I think ha having more of that GM voice in their head would be more helpful uh, when I run this again. And what is your experience with this scenario? How many times have you ran it? I have run this uh, officially one and a half times. 
the first time that I ran it, it sort of fizzled out about halfway through for maybe some of these reasons that we've discussed. And the second time I ran it was for Into the Darkness. And I think took us eight, two to three hour sessions to finally complete it. And I did admittedly rush through the ending because we had some players that had a hard out and I just needed to wrap things up. Honestly, it could go on a lot longer than that too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, in my personal experience, I've only read the scenario. You sound like such a fan of it too. <laughs> There's a reason why I didn't run it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting, but I think if you're realistically going to run this and want to squeeze as much juice out of it as you can, I think you need to go way over the amount and have it less likely that everyone will leave town. Make this almost a longer campaign of this kind of fungal growth infecting people, this investigation into Benthic. It doesn't seem like even four or five sessions is enough. Another threat as written that is weirdly tedious um, is the other FBI office in Montana. During the initial briefing, their handler says, we're getting you together to go in and investigate this, but you're going to need to use your real IDs because there is another mm -hmm. FBI office nearby that we had to shut out of the case and they are pissed off. So if they catch wind that something hinky is going on, they're going to go in and investigate too. This is one such a program move. Mm -hmm. uh, like that's not going to happen in the outlaws. And two... I had to constantly remind my players about this every time mm -hmm. that I, they would be talking with Potter and he would ask for their name. He'd be like, well, I give him this fake name. I'm like, are, are you going to do that? Because you were told not to, because it's going to backfire on you. Mm -hmm. And like, it kind of loses the, the tension and thrill if you have to keep reminding them that it's a thing or <laughs> you just let them make that mistake because they're a player that has other roles and responsibilities and may have forgotten that and then fuck them for it later. Like it, I don't really like that as a potential threat. It just, right. Eh. And now, reanimation. Sound effect, sound effect. Overall, how do we highlight the beating heart of this scenario? I think I've blabbed on about a few of the ways. I've tried to highlight the beating heart for it already. The agents are discovering all of this for the first time. So conflate the local politics with the greater conspiracy. Your agents will think, it's all interconnected in this big thing and will make them super paranoid around town. And it can lead to a fun discovery if they happen to fuck up and try and shoot one of the cops because they think that the cop is working for Benthic and March Technologies, <laughs> which fun story on that later. I'm lucky. <laughs> also, in regards to the contagion, uh, I mentioned earlier too, the scenario asked, I think, the players to roll luck for the things and then add modifiers based off of the types of PPE and equipment that they're wearing. Don't do that. Give a blind roll for it and then adjust any modifiers as necessary and keep all of those notes for yourself. Then whenever some time has passed, drip feed those symptoms to the agents and then like let them use those as tools to role play because it's really fun for that. And also it creates more of a sense of paranoia that the agents don't know when and how they got infected. No matter how good your players are at role playing, if you just let them do this, they're going to learn how to metagame it. And they're just going to subconsciously be driven to like, oh, OK, well, I'm going to put on the hazmat suit and then go do this thing because I know that that's a way I don't have to worry about this. Yeah, walking around in a hazmat suit, I would imagine to be very <laughs> suspicious and sweaty. Yeah. 
it's not the first time I've had players do that in a suburbia. Oh, I had mine walk through the woods in a hazmat suit, and I had him roll <laughs> luck, and he had a twig puncture it and had no idea. Yeesh. I think one of the ways that I would try and highlight this uh, if I were to run it is to really humanize the infected people. This whole campaign scenario, the people don't turn feral like in a lot of other scenarios. They get sick, then they get better. They're confused. They have ulterior motives, but there's no real violence to them. They're sick, but not evil. So that's a really great way towards your point earlier of they say, hey, clean this up. Do you kill these people? Yes. Can you justify that? Yes. The answer is, of course, as always. Yes. And again, that's another reason, like if it's outlaws, they're just going to nuke them. So, right. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a benefit there towards having it be a program game, especially if you do end up having it be a case of they get taken in for experimentation. Is that better? I mean, I'd still make them roll sand. So you're saying it's a mercy, right? Then that means it's <laughs> good? Yeah. Roll, uh, roll pow to see if you can justify that to yourself. <laughs> Oh, Delta Green, so much moral ambiguity. <laughs> and I would say as well for highlighting this, we've talked a little bit about there's so many options for this. Really focus down on what you want to do. If you're doing a one-shot, Benthic, maybe they don't have any March connection at all, right? They're just Benthic, this small company, and they don't run away and delete everything let it be a little bit more focused so that you have a nice one-shot feel. Drop Phenomenex, drop the EPA, get it down. Unless you really want the CDC to be the focus of it, but don't try and put it all in. And I, I've something is telling me that the CDC should not be put in. Yeah, Lex is shaking his head pretty vigorously. Avoid it if at all costs, if at all possible. <laughs> like... Seriously. And also to Nathan, to your point about trying to pare it down and focus it, it's really hard to do that in this scenario. Mm -hmm. And even then, like I just had the EPA people like Jenna Gaylor was just doing her job and she was kind of snarky, but just focused and professional. So my agents mm -hmm. ended up giving her a tip that there was something infectious in the lake. And so I had her cordon off the pit to shut it down. Mm. And that was as neat and tidy as I could possibly wrap it up. If you want to explore the CDC and EPA angles, you are creating <laughs> so much additional unnecessary work for yourself as a GM. I like I think I would have that GM voice in their head saying, do not let this happen because I don't want to fucking deal with it. <laughs> and you're already talking about cutting parts of this scenario. So could you talk to me about what parts you'd remove and what parts you'd add in order to improve it? It's hard to remove Benthic. I think it's interesting mm -hmm. that they're there and it provides a solid justification and explanation for what's been going on that isn't really present in a lot of other Delta Green things. Like in a lot of other investigations, they don't have a chance to know what's happening until after when the credits roll. At the same time, though, you know, we've already mentioned Benthic is impossible to get into from a naive player perspective. And I think it's just way too difficult as written. 
I don't know. So I would really like to hear y'all's input on how you would try and reanimate that to make it easier to access without just saying, oh yeah, these guys work for March Technologies and they're a bunch of bumbling idiots. Well, the way I do it is if I had someone with uh, military science land and they were in a special operator role, I let them identify that it'd probably be easier to catch the employees by themselves in their houses instead of in this almost mm -hmm. compound-like structure that is benthic. Which is interesting, because I think I tried to do that when I ran it for Into the Darkness, and I made a custom handout that as uh, they were researching the company in this specific location, I just gave them a list of all of the employees and their shifts and schedules. It's from the table in the book. They did nothing with it. Like I was trying to say, it's like, these people have addresses here in Helena, Montana. But like, I, I to your yeah, military land point, I think just straight up telling them that as that little GM voice in their head would be super helpful for that. I think that that's also another piece of advice is just be direct with this. Yeah. I tried to play it very heavy in verisimilitude. And I think I accidentally made it too hard on them. Like most of the players said that they had fun. So I guess it wasn't a complete flop. But yeah, definitely be more direct with your players and giving them that bit of GM guidance. And I mentioned this before, but I would definitely add a table that would keep track of the, those that were infected and at what point of the infection was. They were oh yeah, that's mandatory for this. One thing to think about too, if you wanted to use Benthic a little bit more, as it's written, McCaslin has the clairvoyance and for some reason, uh, Dr. Gint doesn't. There's no reason that she can't, and she is in charge of that particular lab. She might see the future enough that the agents get in. Maybe they get a little pushback, and then someone runs up and says, hey, the doctor wants to see these people. Maybe drops a few things that she couldn't even know. That's going to get these agents pretty paranoid just going into this spot that they thought would be difficult to get into. You know, that's interesting. If you turned Ghent into more of a mastermind mm -hmm. and that maybe she could pull the agents aside through an intermediary or a cat's paw and say like, McCaslin is about to spill the beans on this and I need you to go wrap it up and silence him. And she knows too much information about them and maybe even Delta Green. I would just She's... imagine players just shooting her in the head. Well, that's what I'm saying through a cat's paw that like yeah. maybe just talking through a phone that's taped into a random location. Well, also, I have no problem if she invites them in and they shoot her in the head. She is at this point converted. That doesn't mean she'll stay dead and they are in the middle of enemy territory. They can definitely shoot her and then all the security guards roll in and take them out. This is uh, something she could pop back from. That would actually be a really cool scene since you describe it like that. And also, as written, uh, McCaslin and I think Gent too have essentially, if an agent rolls an odd number mm -hmm. on their damage dice, they just phase out of reality. So that could be a moment of, you thought you were going to get the drop on me. <laughs> oh, honey. <laughs> and then she does superpowers on them. And they then have to get the hell out of Dodge. The baby can do that too, as written, which is also very funny. That's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. I actually upped the baby's psychic abilities in mine. Yeah. And uh, something that I did, and I do recommend to other handlers, 
is whenever someone gets infected, because this is a fungus that sort of works like a hive mind, they have mm -hmm. this sort of innate connection to others and can sort of sense that there are others around, maybe how close they are and if they are in distress. So whenever my main group of agents were about to just murk Christina and the baby, the one infected agent really felt this tugging connection to it and just dipped out with Joanna. And it made a great cliffhanger to yeah. end the session on. Uh, so I think making them more connected. I also was going to have Joanna be able to sit. She can't really speak, but she could still do the glamour. If someone falls asleep near her, she can implant visions into their mind. And like she is in there too. And like doing that kind of elementary psychic connection. I like the idea going with that, that not only are they connected, but having access to that hive mind really raises the pride and ego of someone. So to the point of why would she invite them in? They're literally kind of tapping into that Mego just, oh, we know all the secrets and all the sciences. What are you going to do? Nothing. It doesn't matter, which is fine if you actually can back it up. If you're just a person infected with fungus spores, that might lead you to some missteps. Plus, that'll give you a chance to talk about Project Dancer, because I don't know otherwise how the heck agents are going to get to it. That is not there for the agents. That is another <laughs> trademark Delta Green lore dump for potential handlers. This is a similar thing that was in, what is it, Project Visid Malta? Another one that's in Night at the Opera. We're like, half of the fucking scenario is just lore about people from the handler's guide and like it doesn't matter no one's gonna learn about this it's keep keep it for your own source book fanfic things put the scenario stuff in a scenario uh, how about you alex how would you pulp this up i know that's kind of your jam, <laughs> oh, so yeah I, i'm i'm interested as how you'd run this because this really is a heavy paperwork low firepower type scenario if you were to run this what kind of things would you change there? So I normally wouldn't run this, but if you, so since you told me if I were to run twisting it, your yeah, arm, yeah, really. twisting your arm, I, gun, gun <laughs> oh, to boy. your head. I said, you need to run this scenario. <laughs> Say, I want this extra pulpy. <laughs> so you want me to pulpify extremophilia. I would you want me to turn extremophilia to extremophilia. Hell right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, more fungal zombies running around for sure mm -hmm. uh, because I just think that's really entertaining. Uh, definitely would remove the ability to phase and increase the quantity mm. of the, the fungal zombies so that way they just go down uh, easily. Obviously, I would make it an outlaw game because that's just entertaining. <laughs> Cut out the bureaucratic bullshit. Make Breckenridge a little easier to infiltrate. Mm-hmm. Mm, just set fire to Helena. No, I'm joking. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that. One of my players was saying after we had wrapped it up, he said it would have been a lot easier if it were an outlaw game. As a program, mm -hmm. he tried so hard to toe that line between like being professional and trying to sneakily, covertly right. investigate everything. Versus if it was outlaws, he just would have done a B and E at the sheriff's office and then like gotten the stuff and gotten out. That I think right. it could. Making it outlaws enough is going to set you on that track, Alex. Well, that's not to say that you can't just do a B and E for the sheriff's office as a program, because you just don't get caught. 
and that's the solution. <laughs> just roll well. Just roll well. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But I, in in, on, in all honesty, I would not run this scenario because I play to my strengths, and this is a bit slow for me. Fair enough. So, what would we want this to look like at the table, having made all these changes? I think this is more to my speed. I really like letting the player characters take the reins on things and set the initial pace for setting an early theme of investigation and discovery. And then as they, after they discover some stuff, they get infected and they start having these risks of contagion and fears and then paranoia that all the other people in the town seem to be keeping an eye on them. And then having things start getting really out of hand and they no longer are in charge of the timetables. Someone else is footing the bill now and they need to try and catch up to try and desperately scramble to resolve this before it gets completely out of hand. Ideally, that's how I would like this to run at the table. In execution, <laughs> not quite, but close. I, I think yeah. that definitely if you can workshop this some more, you can get something like that. What about you, Nathan? I would definitely try for a slow burn on this. I think I would actually a lot for maybe even about 10 scenarios because I'm very interested from some of the things that Dr. Gint ended up saying in the text that, again, your players may never reach. There's an interesting level of worship through contagion that's very interesting. Not a mimetic contagion in this case but an actual physical one. Um, I believe they mention a good old Nyarlathotep and a black goat of the woods. I'm so sick of Nyarlathotep. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I knew Christ. I'd get that reaction out of you. He's but the uh... fucking Loki of Cthulhu mythos. <laughs> like, we get it. Just stop. Move on. Like, people joke that Deep Ones are just everywhere in Call of Cthulhu. I haven't seen Deep Ones in a long time. Everything is Nyarlathotep. <laughs> but... To that effect, I probably wouldn't have him either because I'm not interested in that. But I don't see a reason why this sort of fungal growth, the child of Christine could take on sort of a, a messiah figure to infected people, including the agents. I thought that was very interesting in your run through that you had agents working to protect this uh, kid. And again, I'd go low violence, long form. You're here to investigate. Alex fell asleep in the <sighs> middle of me saying this. Um, yeah, I think I'd really spread it out and take my time and try and work in Benthic slowly and with less of a hair trigger. I, them running away so quickly is kind of a waste of some pretty interesting characters. I agree with that overall take. I agree with you for once. Um, and I think it's going to be a case of if you want to run this, not only does it need to work for your strengths, know your table. It really mm -hmm. works if you have inquisitive players that really want to dig into the nitty gritty of something and just ask them, do you want something that's going to be more of an investigative sandboxy challenge? Because this doesn't play like a lot of other Call of Cthulhu and a lot of other Delta Green scenarios, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to add in how I'd like this to run at the table, I definitely I wouldn't. wouldn't pump it up. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with Nathan. It's more of a walk, don't run type of scenario where you should mm -hmm. spend your time doing research. And with all the talk of like spinning plates and time bombs, the agents do have 
quite a bit of time because the timeline expects you to be there for like a week or two, right? Uh, so this is another critique that I have of a lot of Delta Green scenarios is they are often <laughs> written with like week plus long timelines. My players always burn through it. Like they are pulling all-nighters. They are there to get in and get out. So oftentimes I had to super accelerate the timelines because, you know, it says like McCaslin hangs out for five days. I'm like, they're on day two and they know where you're at, bud. So he just mm -hmm. goes. Um, I think the timeline is there is more of like a, a suggestion rather than something. Yeah, we should have an episode on pacing. <laughs> Look forward to that in the future, <laughs> dear listeners. At just the right time. <laughs> so with your experience, Lex, your 1.5 games that you ran, can you tell us what worked at the table and what didn't work? The baby worked great. I definitely think, uh, as written, the baby's fine. Amping up the psychic abilities and giving that connection to it to build that little bit of empathy, even if it's sort of a foreign driven empathy, can lead to a lot of player character conflict that was really fun and engaging for everyone at the table. Um, also having her appearance be based on their sand loss. So two different players saw two different things and they started thinking that each other were infected. They thought the baby was mind controlling everyone. That's really fun. Um, Kind of to Nathan's point earlier about making the infected empathetic, having Christina be kind of unhinged, but more of a victim in this, like someone that may be a contagion risk, but is not directly hostile or a danger. Also to tug on your player characters heartstrings a bit, unless they're very battle hardened or adapted to violence or Alex, they're not likely going to murk uh, <laughs> just a mother and very early born child. Infection was good, but keep it as private roles to make it better. And would you, too, the infection is actually some of what Benthic is looking at, and this is jumping around perhaps a bit, is they're looking for immortality. Would you kind of think about having this infection actually cure people of existing things, diseases, that sort of thing, so that it might be almost enticing to get infected? I really like that. That's something that's as written that they're researching that doesn't really have a chance to come up. So it could be interesting if when people look through Christina's medical records, like she could have had cancer and mm. they were really worried about her undergoing chemo and finally getting pregnant. And so like mm. those are some of the records that they find and like to add another layer of sympathy to it and then finding that she's totally okay. So why don't you also tell me about what didn't work? Cracks knuckles. <laughs> okay. A lot of the threads of inquiry in this are met with resistance. As I mentioned before, anytime the agents discover something, it feels like they earned it, which is kind of cool. Except when everything is difficult, I found in my game, players would often half follow up on leads. They would sort of start digging in something, get some resistance, and then give up halfway through. They would start something else and then give up. Mm -hmm. So they never got a lot of the payoffs that like I, as a GM, I really wanted them to get. I'm like, it's right there. And I, this was also in hindsight, I suppose it's my fault because I should have had more direct GM God voice in their head to mm. say like, you're just right there. But I tried to keep everything in terms of verisimilitude. I like yeah. players to feel like they are in this world and can try and contribute and share to it. Yeah. Is there a, do you think it would be helpful to kind of explicitly say that for some of these things of like, you feel like you're almost at the edge of something if you spent the night 
like kind of using that to stretch out the timeline or would that be a little too uh, metagamey? In my opinion, I tried to do that in a couple of instances. Um, mm-hmm. I remember one instance specifically as uh, an agent was talking with Benthic staff after they had already terminated everyone's contracts and were closing the doors and they had an airtight NDA on them. Yep. And so this, the agent's just like talking to her at the front door. And I just said like, I want to tell you, but I can't. And I was really trying in character to show like she is almost breaking. She is right there. And just trying to say, it's like, if you push a little mm-hmm. harder and they just ended up like, okay, well, thank you for your time. And then left. <laughs> and it felt like a missed opportunity. I think in cases like this, you're going to need to peek out from behind the curtain and just maybe from a more metagamey standpoint, say, you feel like you can do this if you use law. You feel like mm-hmm. if you mention mm-hmm. you can get them legal protection or witness protection, they might open up. I personally don't run that way because I find it immersion breaking, but I think it's well, I feel like you can frame it in such a way that with your law skill at 60%, mm. then here's the information. I think in hindsight, since I have more experience as a handler now, yeah, I would probably, I would definitely do that again. This was just yeah. things that I ran into whenever I ran it that like, I didn't mean to make it more challenging than it needed to be because it's, it's pretty challenging as written. Um, also as written, there's not a lot of really big opportunities for these agents to be aware of the contagion spread and the risk of transmission. So it's another case that from the GM side of the curtain, I can see all of these different ticking time bombs that are happening. And the agents have no idea. I felt like I really tried to tease that Holsey was in the hospital. Like he drove away, his car is gone. But like, there weren't a lot of real world opportunities for me to highlight that until the hospital is on fire. So there's lots of stuff like that, that it's, it's hard to bring it to the agent's attention without it being like someone at Benthic hit reply all to everyone <laughs> in the U.S. government. And like it, it, yeah, it's dumb. And also just there are so many NPCs and speed bump type characters that as written, it's so shallow. It really doesn't give you a lot to go. It, it creates more issues than they solve. Yeah, there's a lot of good opportunities for sympathetic NPCs here, especially like you mentioned before with Benthic. There could be a whistleblower that's trying to, you know, drop a hint, but they know that the sheriff's in the pocket of these people and they don't know what to do. There's opportunities to have more help than what you are initially getting if you feel like your agents are truly deeply struggling. Uh, I did want to bring up one thing. We talked a little bit about the McCaslin escape being a bit anticlimactic. If he doesn't, in fact, get to the mountain and get up it, which is realistically pretty difficult to do. And I think they mentioned, like, if Christina shows up with the baby, she stopped from even attempting it. She never will get the chance to go up there on her own because it's a very difficult climb. What do you think would tie into a satisfying conclusion for this if we don't get the Mego encounter on Devil's Tower? What's kind of weird about this scenario 
is that the climax is not the conclusion or ending. Hmm. And the conclusion and ending is not really written about in the scenario. The the McCaslin thing is like, that's sort of the, that's the Marvel movie ending to it. <laughs> but they have this fungus that they know is in the pit. That's also weirdly difficult to access the location to as mm -hmm. written. I would kind of tweak that a little bit too. Um, and it's extremely difficult to dispose of. They're just like, you have like, there's a rocket launcher that's in the green box and you can shoot it underwater, but you got to use, you got to pass demolitions three times in a row or you blow yourself up. Fuck you. And like, yeah, I would say that the final control and wrap up and containment of the situation is the real conclusion, which also is more of a quiet ending. And hmm. I think particularly in Delta Green, this is already a slow burn scenario. You kind of want it to go out on a bang. Yeah, fair point. All right, Lex. So since once again, you are the only one that has run this out of all of us. Do you have any fun war stories? So I mentioned earlier, I had an agent who was convinced that the entire town or the entire sheriff's office was in on this bigger conspiracy. And they were all part of March Technologies and part of Benthic. And so I, I orchestrated this initial setup as a favor to the agent because McCaslin got the drop on them and had them drive way outside of Helena and were there with an empty tank of gas. So I had Sergeant Hayes, who was kind of their buddy, tap on the window and say like, hey, I'm, are you drunk? And the guy's just like, what? No, you want to do a sobriety test? And I, as a mostly law-abiding citizen, have never been pulled over in a traffic stop before. And so I just tried to role play out this kind of like, well, I mean, you seem like you've been under the substance. It smells like meth in here. Uh, I'm going to need you to come with me at least like, let me just give you a ride back into town or to a gas station. And this player is very familiar with law enforcement. And so his uh, alarm bells are going off. Like, this is not how this is supposed to happen. This is a setup. <laughs> and so he slams the door open and tries shooting Sergeant Hayes and they get into this big knockdown drag out on the side of the road. <laughs> He ends up shooting Hayes a couple of times. Hayes kicks ass with every melee roll, like constantly rolling crits, but then almost fumbles every firearms roll. So <laughs> inevitably, the guy knocks the gun out of Hayes' hands and he hesitates while holding him down, like kind of standing over him with the gun down. And Hayes gets out his taser, <laughs> tases the fuck out of the agent, <laughs> knocks him over, and then finally gets him handcuffed. I tried giving him a few <laughs> rolls to get out of it, and Hayes just, I mean, raffle stomps on him with every combat roll <laughs> to get the handcuffs put on. And then afterwards, whenever he collapses, you know, the, the agent is like, God, I can't fucking believe it. You at Benthic can eat my ass. I can't believe you're doing this to the American people or whatever. And Hayes is like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? Potter just told me to bring you in because you pissed him off. And the, the player's face was like, oh, oh, fuck. <laughs> that was where I cut it. Um, Oh, yeah, it's a really great memory from that campaign. Definitely the high point there. Um, the other was I had one of the agents was infected and very attached to Joanna. So he kind of put Joanna in a little baby pupusa to carry up the mountain. 
while Christina was following. And when they got to the top, you know, the Mego brain scoop McCaslin. And then the one Mego sort of, I described it as opened up like this big meaty flower. And I had the agent put Joanna into the insides of this Mego as like a little baby carrier for transportation. It's like this big sanity, like I should not be doing this. And then they get into the big gunfight. As the Mego is, are flying around, this agent takes a shot at it and hits. And I describe that they hear the sounds of a baby crying inside of it and causes them to pull their <laughs> shots on that one for the rest of the encounter, which I found really fun. Very visceral. I love it. That's great. Oh, yeah. And another agent threw Joanna into a cat carrier with a blanket and a few double <laughs> A batteries and carried a screaming infant down the street in the sidewalk uh, in the middle of daylight, which they happened to pass a luck roll at minus 30%. So good on them. So do you have any advice having ran extremophilia? Nathan, please talk. I've talked pretty much this whole episode. But he's never run it. <laughs> I've never run it. Fuck. I don't want to do. I mean, I think we've talked a yeah, lot about this. So I think that's. Yes. Bad. Listen to every. Just rewind it. <laughs> listen to everything else. Fuck. <laughs> Do you have any ideas to potentially expand the scenario? I would not. The scenario is already a slow burn. It's a very deliberate investigation, and it can possibly get very out of hand, especially if CDC and EPA get involved. Again, please don't do this to yourself. <laughs> it's going to make so much work. It's not funny. I think if you want to bring these agents in for longer like campaign play, like Nathan suggested, have them get cancer from it later, because then that can give them a bit of a, I don't have much time left. And that can Ooh, lead to a very yeah. desperate, like they're willing to overextend themselves in a future investigation, perhaps. There's a lot of stuff too that you could tie on to later easily. Like Dr. Gint, there's no ending specified for them. So if the agents don't take care of them, that's a great NPC to just use later. Just keep it in your back pocket. We hope our deranged utterings are helpful in bringing this game to life at your table. You can join the autopsy discussion on Discord and subscribe or follow the podcast to hear more gruesome cases. Be sure to check out the show notes for links on where to find this scenario, where to find us, and other links for things like handouts, actual plays of this scenario that we recommend, and other resources. So until next time, thanks for listening to RPG Reanimators. Where your games can die or live on the table. Alex is supposed to be hosting this thing. This is your God damn it. This Alex. is your rodeo. All right, all you shut up. Let me Listen let up. me jump around a little bit. Listen up, you fuckers, because <laughs>